funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Silver Screen Video with your hosts, Jacob and Jonathan. Uh, Jacob, how's it going this week? How you doing? Doing good, man. You uh, you wound me up before the podcast. You got me all you got me all in all into a froth, and, uh, <laughs> and like, now we're just now we're just recording the podcast like nothing happened. I just picture you like sitting in your apartment foaming at the mouth while we're recording this episode. Oh, I'm foaming, brother. <laughs> uh anyway, uh yeah, you know what? That's fine. If you feel that way, that is your prerogative to feel that way as a human being. Oh, so, is it? Is yeah, it, it is. <laughs> is it my prerogative? Anyway, oh, interesting. Guys, we uh we hope you had a chance. Uh, to listen to our Killers of the Flower Moon episode last week because we had a lot of fun discussing it. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed doing it. Also, at this point, I hope all of you have seen it. Um, because if not, what are you doing with your life? Mm. So anyway, this week we're doing some Alfred Hitchcock movies that uh, my great co-host picked. But before we get into that, I've got a couple of Halloween holdovers, if you will. Okay, I was holding there, but you didn't do anything. So <laughs> <laughs> I will not. Real quick, real quick, I uh, I watched the movie on Shutter. Uh, it's been on my list a while, and uh, normally speaking, I wouldn't even bring up some weird Shutter movie I watched. But this one came out during COVID. It was done completely on webcam, and it's called Host. And essentially, they do a seance on webcam and it's 57 minutes long and i gotta tell you it's probably the most efficiently used type of uh found footage film i've ever seen in terms of what they were like bang for your buck uh i was really impressed i highly recommend to anyone who is a fan of the horror genre or found footage genre to check it out uh odds are i'm the one that's behind on this because it is three years old but um it had a lot of hype when it came out and I just kind of ignored it because I didn't care. Uh, but I, I truly was impressed. I probably haven't enjoyed a found footage movie that much since the Blair Witch Project, which is high praise because I love that movie. But uh, still, it was really good. That's high praise. More than uh, Paranormal Activity? I wasn't a fan of Paranormal Activity. Um, oh, really? But, but the reason, well, the reason I wasn't is no offense to, no, no offense to the movie. But we watched it whenever it was like the end of its hype cycle. Because, you know, it ended up making like $200 million. Right, right. And everyone was talking about it. And you could not go anywhere without hearing about how terrifying this was. And we put it on. And, and I remember liking it. I thought it was like well made. I really liked a lot of the tricks that they used to make some of those scares work. And honestly, that is something that continued throughout that series. Cause I think they've made like five or six now, but mm. they actually did some really cool shit, even in the bad sequels involving like, um, like a blanket over a ghost kind of, but just in really creative ways involving like the PS three 
Do you remember that motion sensor thing that the PS3 was like bragging about for a while before, like before VR tech and all that exploded? Yep. Yep. There's a great scene in like the third one involving that tech. And some of that shit is really terrifying. So I am a fan of the overall series, but paranormal activity didn't hit the same for me because, uh, it was just so hyped up, man. I was just like, I don't, I don't, I've seen it a couple of times since it's probably actually time for a rewatch. So this, uh, this one you're talking about is the host or is just host. It's, it's just host. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, but I was, uh, I was honestly, I was blown away. Like I, I don't, I typically don't get too into some of these, uh, just rando horror movies we find on, on shutter or Amazon prime or whatever. But I really was, uh, it was very effective. I actually, I I've, I've since read about it a little bit. And like, there were some people who said that they started watching it at night and had to turn it off and finish it in the daytime because of how scary it was. Oh, damn. I clearly, I mean, you know, I wasn't scared, but you don't, I don't, I don't really, most people who are, who are horror watchers don't watch movies to be scared. They just see like how, how to me anyway, I just see how efficient they're going to be with what they're trying to do. If if you've got slashers, you want to see creative kills. If you've got a haunted house thing, you want it to be suspenseful and have some creative visuals and all that. And this movie checks that box. And there's a decent amount of violence that I really liked as well. So Overall, dude, cannot uh, recommend this movie enough, especially considering the runtime. Okay, okay. You know, I was trying to think of, uh, you know, found footage movies are such a, uh, they're just such a, uh, I feel like they're a huge part of like 21st century movie going. And I I was trying to think like, how, how many have I even seen? And it's not many. They feel like, it feels like there are more of them than there, there actually are. Like, I'm having a hard time. Like, I looked up a list, and, like, the only one I've really seen on this list is, like, Cloverfield and uh, Troll Hunters. Remember that movie? Oh, that movie was epic. Yeah. Yeah, that movie's really good, but, like, I don't know, man. I just feel like I haven't seen a lot of I guess they're mostly horror movies. Maybe that's why I haven't seen a lot of them. Yeah, they are mostly horror movies. I mean, you've got a couple of outliers that would be considered um found footage because of how they're shot like possibly searching would be considered found footage uh end of watch district nine a little bit um yeah district nine kind of, yeah 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 but i mean you know i don't really consider end of watch is probably the most obvious non-horror example but i mean dude when it comes to found footage movies you've got the entire vhs series is really fun um there's a great, uh, I think it was, I don't know if it's South Korean, uh, something called Ganjiam, a haunted asylum. That's, that's a really good found footage movie where they go into this haunted asylum that, that was really effective. I don't know. Mm. I'm a big fan of the found footage. The, the problem is they're a dime a dozen because like you said, they're a big part, especially after Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity because everybody wanted to get on that money train. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. But aside from that, um, I did go see the new Alexander Payne movie. I, I won't go into detail too much because we are going to do an Alexander Payne episode in a few weeks, but we probably won't talk about this movie that much because I'm assuming you will not have a chance to watch it by then. But uh, his new movie, The Holdovers, is um instant classic. 
Paul Giamatti gives what might be my favorite performance he's ever given. Uh, so mainly I wanted to bring it up just to tell you guys, if you if it's playing near you, go see it. You won't regret it. It is like two hours and change. It's really, it's just, it's, it's so great. I mean, I don't want to say it's, um, I don't want to use the word brilliant, but it is, uh, it's what you expect from Alexander Payne, despite the fact that he did have a small misstep with downsizing. Uh, which that one we will be discussing when we do the pain episode. So I will, I will hold off on that, but I'm glad to see he was able to get right back into rhythm. Like he did not miss a beat when it comes to what, what he's typically known for with the holdovers. It's just, it's fantastic. So this is kind of the logical follow-up to Nebraska, you would say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, dude, I still don't understand what was going on with downsizing, but like I said, we'll get into that in a few weeks, but that movie is such a, fucking anomaly i do not understand that movie well good to hear the uh the new one's good i actually i don't even think it's out here yet um but i am very excited for it especially the return of uh paul giamatti man i feel like he's been he's been he's been wrapped up in billions for too long like it's nice to have you know nice to have old paul giamatti back yeah i really tried to watch billions um but i wasn't able to because it's not very good so <laughs> I watched the first season and I enjoyed it. Um, but the second season I was like, it, it starts wearing thin. It's like, oh, they're just, they're just going to keep doing the same stuff. I'm like, okay. You know? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not comparing the two because I've never watched uh succession, but it's kind of like why I don't want to watch succession because um, I just, I feel like it could be kind of repetitive and I just, I don't want to commit to that for five seasons or whatever. So there's a lot of like, <laughs> like epic soy banter in, in well, definitely in Succession, but also in, uh, in Billions. Like it's like, uh, you know, every character is like, I'm the coolest fucking person in the fucking world. Fuck you, motherfucker. Like, and it's like, okay, all right. Like, I don't know. It's uh, hey, there's nothing it, wrong with self confidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, when every character is really just talking the same and acting the same and they're all just equally cool and witty, it's like, okay, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like, what is, what is this? You know, I don't know. I, I, I agree. Was, You've got to have some lame asses to kind of mix it up. You got to have a Pete Campbell, you know, like, that's, yeah, that's true. You got to have a Pete Campbell and a Peggy Olsen in your show to just, you know, kind of, kind of make everybody else seem smart as opposed to, you know, when everybody's smart, nobody's smart. Um, anyways. Well, yeah, I mean, either way, I mean, I, I, I was glad to see Giamatti return. Like, dude, that guy, you know, we're going to obviously discuss him a lot more uh, in the future for that episode, but man, that guy is like, he, he is a, he is a leading man trapped in no offense, Mr. Giamatti, that guy. So (laughs) (laughs) Giamatti is like, that's actually one of the problems with billions because billions because you know what's his name damian lewis plays bobby axelrod like the basically if elon musk was cool you know like the richest hedge fund manager in the world and like they try to make paul giamatti out to be like his equal you know and it's like that's the fatal flaw of the tv show because it's like dude giamatti is not you know what I mean? Like he's supposed to be the guy that's angry and it's funny when he gets mad, you know, like it's, he's not supposed to be the equal of, 
you know, some big handsome hedge fund guy, you know, um, he's supposed to be like a little worm almost. I mean, Damian Lewis was the main reason I wanted to check it out. Cause I'm a big fan. Um, but I mean, yeah, I don't, I honestly, outside of what you've just told me, I don't really know much about that show. So I don't even know how many seasons there are or anything. Dude, it's, I mean, it, people like it. There's, there, I think the like seventh season just came out. I think they're, I think that's the last one, but, um, I'm surprised you watched it. Typically you're pretty stingy when it comes to TV shows. So, well, I mean, actually I'm not that stingy when it comes to like trying a TV show. Now, when it comes oh, to okay. Okay. finishing and completing, like that's a whole nother thing. I'm a quitter, man. I, like if that thing gets a little too boring, I'm like, eh, you're out, you're out of the rotation, pal. See, that's why I'm afraid to start shows like that because I will finish it. I will finish it, gritting my teeth. Um, you know, eyes bloodshot. I don't care. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm watching every episode of every season. So, not me. I'm checking out at the first sign of just boredom. Dude, there's know? gonna be boredom sometimes. It doesn't even make any sense. You gotta you gotta give the show room to breathe. Not me. I mean, I don't. <laughs> Actually, I don't. You know what? Why don't you just go back to Frasier, pal? Okay. Anyway, let's talk Hitchcock. You mm. you wanted to to kind of do a, a wrap up of Hitchcock's big, like you know, big time movies and all that. So uh, that brings us to here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you kind of want to wrap up? What you want to take away from how? myself and the listeners should view Hitchcock when we're yeah you know I I I just kind of want a larger project on the podcast that is not going to be like some big you know themed thing that we do or whatever but I wanted to kind of wrap up some of these old masters that we've talked about quite a lot frankly like I don't I don't think we really have much to say much more to say about Hitchcock the director that we haven't said in previous episodes, but we have stuff to think to say about some of his more canonical movies that we haven't covered, you know? Um, and I think that's the same with, uh, you know, there's a couple Orson Welles movies that we, that we haven't, you know, talked about, um, you know, a couple different, uh, uh, Fellini movies, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I just figured it might be nice to kind of put a little bow, not that we're, not that this will finish out Hitchcock, but, you know, maybe this and a couple more episodes just to kind of finish out um, Hitchcock's main filmography and uh, just address some of the movies that we've never talked about. You know, for instance, uh, one of them, which I think we're going to do coming up, is British Hitchcock. We've never talked about any of his British films. And his British career was a career unto itself. You know, like it was completely different different than any movies he made in America. Um and uh, this one, too, I thought uh, I thought there was no like overarching theme. I was just like, well, we haven't done Shadow of a Doubt and we haven't done Strangers on a Train. And then after watching them, I was like, oh, wow, these movies match up actually pretty nicely with their kind of uh, twin doppelganger uh, storylines. So what is your history with these movies? I know you because uh, for me, I'll speak for myself. I I watch these movies um, whenever I was watching, you know, all the classic Hitchcock movies which is to say a long time ago, probably I was, you know, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago. And uh, I, uh, I, I watched these too, because, uh, you know, after the big ones, you know, Vertigo, Psycho, The Birds, uh, Rear Window and all those, North by Northwest, I watched these and I, w- I remember being disappointed in them. And I was just like, man, they're not, 
not quite as interesting or thrilling or as sophisticated as the 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 best of Hitchcock, which I mean, what is you know what I mean? Not never many movies, not very many movies. Period are as sophisticated as you know Vertigo or Psycho or whatever. So you know maybe I had a little bit of outsized expectations, but uh, so me personally revisiting them now was kind of an interesting. Um, it was an interesting perspective, but what's your history with these movies? Did you see them when you were a kid or did you uh, wait and see them when you got older or what context have you seen these movies in? No, this was my first time watching both. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Outside of your mainstays with Hitchcock, um, like all the ones you mentioned, we we briefly talked about rewatching Psycho a couple of episodes back. Um Outside of the main ones, I just didn't I didn't watch a lot of a lot of Hitchcock. And honestly, I never really felt the want or need to to kind of watch more of his films uh, when I really got into old movies and stuff like that, just because it's never never really occurred to me. Um, But I will tell you that was a mistake simply because, yeah, these these movies may not be top tier like your heavy hitters, North by Northwest, Psycho, Rear Window, Vertigo. Um, but there's definitely a place for these. Honestly, watching these along with um, also, uh, all the other movies we've talked about, I should say, with like um, Rebecca being one of them, um, it kind of makes me think of Raul Walsh because mm. he's so consistent with what he wants to put in his films what he want themes he wants to explore. And I really like that. There's something, there's something somewhat comforting about having these constants throughout most of your movies. Um, mm, yeah. Before, before we jump to these two, I did want to mention, we talked about psycho, but I did not uh, talk about it on the podcast. I recently revisited real window and oh, okay. uh, real window is perfect. Like mm. it, it is, in my opinion, it is hands down Hitchcock's best movie. And personally, I'm biased, but I think there's not much of an argument to be made that anything else he made was as great as that with everything, the set, the characters, the performances, the tension. I mean, it it was, it's such a beautiful, amazing movie. Like every time I watch it, 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 my, my jaw is agape by the perfection of it. it. It really is one of the greatest movies ever made, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would probably, um, I would probably, you know, obviously my love for Vertigo is well trod. And, I, you know, I think Psycho may have a little bit of an argument, but no, I'm with you. I mean, you know, when we talk about Hitchcock and we, and oh, and I, I wanted to mention this too. When I talk about his canonical films, I just want to do, I pulled up a list of his filmography here. These are the kinds of movies I'm talking about. Um, just for clarity's sake, when we talk about, Hitchcock's most canonical because he made a bunch of movies. Um, uh, I'm talking about in uh, in the UK when he, the British movies, the Thirty Nine Steps and the Lady Vanishes, and then if his American movies, um, I think Rebecca, Shadow of a Doubt, Notorious, uh, Strangers on a Train, and then with Rear Window begins his greatest period: Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie, and. Lately, and when I say lately, I mean over the past 10 years or so, Rope has entered that kind of canonical status as well, um, which I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that movie, even though I, I, I mean, I think it's good and, and watchable and all that. Um, 
but I seem to be in the minority there. A lot of people really love that movie. And I love a lot of other Hitchcock movies. I mean, I love Suspicion. I talked about Saboteur recently that I watched, and it was great. Um, to Catch a Thief is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, but those are those are second tier, and, and I would recommend, obviously, any of those. Uh, I would recommend any Hitchcock movie, frankly. Um, but I also want to say, like, I, you know, we've talked about this before, and I come down on the side of David Thompson, and I think we kind of both do. And the Hitchcock, I don't really respect his artistic vision as a whole. You know, I think he's very cold and calculating um, and seemingly unaware of his own his own issues, with the exception of Vertigo, with the strong exception of Vertigo. Um, that being said, that doesn't mean that I don't like any of his movies. Same with Kubrick. I, I question Kubrick's overall artistic uh, project, but I love some of his movies. I mean, you know, you can't deny 2001, Strange Love. With, I mean, clearly, you know my feelings on Kubrick. Anybody that listens to this podcast knows my feeling on Kubrick, but I still can't deny the fact that that is, some, that is a way they are very relatable. They yeah. are both like too cold to be like I, I, an exa- a, a recent example would be, I'm not saying clearly Alexander Payne is in either of their categories, but I watched the holdovers and there's something there. There's something that is warm blooded and like feels like it is trying to move you. Hmm. And I feel you, you, you feel that with, I mean, killers is a flower moon Scorsese does it. I mean, there's so many, even if they're not necessarily trying to move you, they are trying to jar something. A Fincher is another good example. Um, but with, with Kubrick and with, with Hitchcock, more so with Hitchcock, it just became that, that systematic approach, that robotic idea of storyboarding. And this is what I want. And this is how it's going to look. There's no room for this. I mean, as we've discussed before, which continues to blow my mind when I think about it, Hitchcock was so good at storyboarding. He didn't even really think he needed to be on set all the time, which is crazy, you know? Um, So while I do think he is a, a very special director, especially when you look at what he means to old Hollywood, what he means to filmmaking in general, um, he's very important and irreplaceable in regards to the history of filmmaking. Uh, but he is, he's very, very cold. I mean, I, 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 you know, you get something from these movies, but I think that's like a byproduct of the actual themes of the movies and has nothing to do with Hitchcock trying to convey it. No, I agree that there's very little, um, which I think is why Vertigo is such a special movie. And I don't even mean that, that from the perspective of it's one of my favorites, but it's the only movie that he's made where he <laughs> kind of lets himself onto the screen, you know, or lets himself uh, into the movie, you know, and when you see that, you're like, wow, at least it feels like a human made this, you know, this man is laying his sins bare on the screen for all of us to see. Um, but I, you know, these directors, I think, and I think Spielberg is sometimes in this category. I think Nolan is definitely in this category. And I, like you said, Fincher, I think he's in this category too. They're directors of, they're making a big, you know, and that's why, that's why rear window is such a great Hitchcock movie because the set of that movie was essentially real. Right. I mean, you know, like it was, it was like the most expensive set ever built. And that set is almost like a metaphor for a mode of filmmaking, you know, Hitchcock, Nolan, 
Kubrick, these types of filmmakers are making big, uh, they're making a piece of architecture almost to wow you, right? And I mean, architecture sometimes in the physical sense, but some also in the narrative sense, right? It's a big, um, it's a big, beautiful box or something, or it's a big, beautiful uh, puzzle or, or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use, but there's nothing to really, there's nothing that's really ever concerned with humanity going on. Uh, you know, and there are exceptions to that. Don't get me wrong. There are exceptions, but as a, as, as a general rule, I think they're, they're, they're concerned with making these kind of big artifices, but, and this is the key caveat, boy, what artifices they are sometimes, you know what I mean? Like sometimes those artifices are one hell of a ride, you know? Um, and that's, uh, that's where I think I can, I can be skeptical of their overall artistic project, but man, I love some of their, some of their products, you know, and some of their, their movies. Cause they're just, they're experts at creating this, this mechanism, you know, this big mechanism that you watch kind of unfold on the screen in a really awesome way. Um, so which one do you think we should get into first? We're going to do Shadow of a Doubt first? Just yeah, chron- let's do chronologically. Sh- yeah, Shadow of a Doubt came out in 43, Strangers on a Train, 51. Um, Shadow of a Doubt is just about a teenage girl who's happy to see her uncle uh, as he visits their small, quiet town. Come to find out he might be a serial killer, and she soon begins suspecting that uh, when she's told by a couple of detectives, look, this movie... I didn't even need to know this motherfucker was a murderer for him to be one of the creepiest uncles on the planet. Okay. (laughs) I'm an uncle. Okay. I have many nieces and nephews and this guy makes all uncles look bad. He is a creepy, weird motherfucker. And that's, and that's, uh, that's like disregard the fact that he's a murderer and has some very questionable opinions on women. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's the first thing I took away from this movie. Well, let's talk about the serial killer. Let's talk about uh, 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 Joseph Cotton uh, and his role in this, because obviously he is, you know, this movie is set up in opposition, right? We have this, you know, idyllic American town with this, you know, typical American family, whatever, whatever, and happy American family. And in to invade them comes Joseph Cotton as the, what is he, the Merry Widow murderer or something? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a great scene in Citizen Kane. And I mean, great. There's a great scene in Citizen Kane where Joseph Cotton is is Orson Welles's, you know, buddy throughout the whole movie. And then uh, at a certain point, uh, Joseph Cotton asks uh, Jed Leland, he, he says, uh, am, he, I can, I'm paraphrasing it, but he goes, am I a stuffed shirt? Am I a... Am I a dowdy school marm, you know, basically asking Jed Leland, like, am, am I all of these things that Charlie Kane says I am? And Leland goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great moment because there's no, re- there's no reason in the movie that we ever have to dislike Joseph Cotton, right? But when he says that phrase, it's like, oh, my God, that you're right. You are smarmy and kind of annoying and kind of. And I guess what I'm saying by that is there's something unlikable about Joseph Cotton. And even the roles where he's nice and plays a good character, there is something annoying about him. And I don't mean, I don't mean in his mannerisms or I find him annoying as an actor. I mean, there's like, 
I just can't put my finger out. There's something annoying about him and his line delivery. And this movie exploits that. I think there's something unsettling about Joseph Cotton and the way that he reads his lines. And, um, and yeah, I, th- this movie perfectly like plays off of that and turns him into a f- stone cold psycho. There's no other words for it. Like this guy, like has some of the most chilling dialogue and chilling uh, scenes in any movie, right? When he's like, open the f- open the sides of those houses and you'd see nothing but swine. It's like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Like, dude, that the. The the best delivery in the movie is when she I forgot what exactly was she was like but they are people and like yeah the camera zooms in on his face <laughs> it's so terrifying like and then not to mention the dinner scene where he's yeah. just talking about I believe he calls them like um something f- fat animals or something it was so disturbing I, I forgot exactly what he said but then the the aunt, the his sister is like. I don't want the girls at the country club to hear you talk about women this way. And it's like, no one should hear you talk about women this yeah, way. What You're are you a talking psycho. About? Yeah. No, he's talking about Plus, like, it'd be different if he was talking about like rich, rich stuck up women. And he's like, no, he's talking about widows. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> he goes, these men work all their lives and the widows are, they are left around to spend their money, you know? And yeah. And she's like, but they're human, aren't they? Cause he calls them something like filthy animals or something. And he looks directly at the camera and goes, are they, <laughs> <laughs> are they human? Dude? It's yeah. He's he, man. He, he's chewing on some scenery here, man. It, I think it's a really great villain performance from him. No, I agree. I thought he was fantastic in it. Um, I dude, I just the, the scene towards the end when when he is talking to the guy who's leaving the detective and he's like, oh, and of course you'd, you'd want to come back. And he like squeezes his niece's face and she he's like, you know, she's a really I forgot. I cannot remember the exact phrase, but he was like, yeah, she's a very uh, nice looking young woman or something. It's like you can't touch your niece's face and say those things <laughs> sir <laughs> so <laughs> and also like he fucking almost breaks her wrist like yeah and the then she just like there. giggles about it and walks off like oh okay yeah it was just a mistake you didn't know you were squeezing and bending that hard <laughs> thanks uncle charlie sorry i got <laughs> mad about you breaking my wrist yeah because i was like you know i found this piece of paper that i'm not supposed to see for some reason like you do it's just oh yeah he's he a- was so good He's a fucking psycho. And the, you know, I, I, I want to bring up, because he's contrasted against, this is the, a very big part of the movie. He's contrasted against this wholesome all-American family. And Hitchcock was very, he talks about this being his favorite movie, his most personal movie, um, which, I don't know, man. Re- you know, really? This is your favorite movie? I don't know. I'm so skeptical of that. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. How is this your most personal movie, Hitchcock? Did you murder widows? I mean, <laughs> what what are you doing here? Oh, okay. No, I can explain that. He he says it's his most personal movie because um, he based uh, the mother in the story around his mother, his own mother, who was dying at the time uh, of the filming. Um, and I guess okay. Here's what I want to say, and I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna lead with it and see if you either agree or disagree because. It's a very important plot mechanic. We have to contrast Joseph Cotton with 
this all-American family, right? So that's what we're supposed to get from from this portrait of of all-American family. There's the dad and the mom and the three kids, and they live in a small town and whatever, whatever. I think that Hitchcock is not very good at portraying a small town America and an all American family. Right. I don't think, I don't think he's very good at that because he thinks that he did a loving portrait of his mother. This woman is like dotty. Like she is like not fit for, I mean, I'm not saying she needs to go to an insane asylum, but she needs to like, she is completely oblivious to the fact that her brother is a stone cold psycho killer. And there are, there are hints, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like the dinner scene we just talked about. Like, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think Hitchcock is great at performing or at, at portraying this like warm, wholesome family to contrast Joseph Cotton's stone cold killer. And when I say warm portrait of family, I'm thinking of, you know, maybe Orson Welles's portrait of the Ambersons at the beginning of Magnificent Ambersons, just to use something else Joseph Cotton is in, or Orson Welles' depiction of small-town America in The Stranger from 1946, which is a great film noir where he plays a Nazi collaborator. Um, other examples from the period, Vincent Minnelli's Meet Me in St. Louis, right, which is a portrait of a turn-of-the-century turn um, small-town American family who's about to be about to be ripped apart by progress. Um, and even, like, Fanny and Alexander, you know, Ingmar Bergman, at least the first hour of that movie. Um and I'm just using those in contrast because they do a really good job of portraying wholesome family dynamics in a in, in a stable environment. And it would be very easy to say, well, Hitchcock is subverting that. I don't think he is. I think he thinks he's portraying a wholesome, authentic American family. But I just don't think he's doing a very good job of it because he's a little pervert. Like, he, you know, he can't portray wholesomeness. This is Alfred Hitchcock. You know what I mean? I don't know. What do you think about that that take? I mean, on the one hand, I agree with you. But on the other hand, we have to remember that that point in history was about primarily for women ignoring red flags hmm. and like being oblivious to what was going on regardless of what you thought the male household was doing. It could be your brother, your husband, your uncle, like whatever. Um, so when, when I, when I think about the, the, the relationship, I think that's what mode his sister is in. And then of course, being the younger generation, the niece is more in like a curiosity. Like I'm actually open to believing that you're not what I think you are kind of thing. So while right. I do agree with you that he's not great at it, I think there were some aspects that worked like that for me. And, and that's what they were. Mm, that's fair. Okay. So no, that makes a lot of sense. So the portrayal of the mother is kind of like, a, like portraying your own mother as like har kind of charmingly naive, right? Would you say that's maybe his portrayal of his own mother that way? Yeah, I mean, but also like the charmingly naive, but also, like I said, the look the other way type, don't mm. want to make a fuss type, like okay. the, the I'm not even like it's, it's and, and we see it in a lot of old movies in general with people who do know how to kind of capture that time period a bit better with with families and the family dynamic. Okay. So I, I I will say this, though, I don't I think you can watch this movie 
and and find out that Hitchcock based it on his mother and put together that I don't I don't think he had the healthiest view of his mother. Mm, right. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or with women in general. I mean, um, well, I mean, that was a given. Yeah, that's a given. We, we know that already. We've all seen Vertigo. We know that. Um, what about the dad? I'm interested to hear what he, what do you say about the dad? Uh, well, I guess the dad and the kids too, because the dad is obsessed with mystery novels. The little kids are annoying at best. <laughs> you know, like yeah, they're uh, very annoying. Yeah, I mean, I, I I just get the sense Hitchcock is like, this is a great American family, and it's like, dude, no, it's not. Have you ever been around a fucking family before? What is wrong with you? You know, like, um. What about the dad being obsessed with mystery novels? Like, it, it seems like him and the mom are just both just kind of like, uh, what's the word? Just distracted and not paying attention, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I think the dad's just doing what, I mean, whatever the fuck he wants, which kind of fits the bill for that time period. Like, he doesn't have to give yeah. a shit. The only time he needs to give a shit about his wife's brother being there is when it's dinner time or lunchtime. Like, you know, That's... it's like. That's Until true. then, I'm in my own world talking to my nerdy little friend about how we can murder people. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, what about what about the big enigma? I, I say enigma, but I guess just we we haven't talked about it yet. Just the last thing. What about the kind of um, what about the niece? What about niece Charlie? Uh, you know what? What about her? Because I, I, there's an interesting thing with her that I can't quite put my finger on, and then I was having a difficult time kind of interpreting because. At the beginning of the movie, she's very, she's linked to the serial killer, right? She's linked to Uncle Charlie. They're both laying down in bed brooding when we first meet them, and their names are Charlie, and there's a weird incestual thing where, like, he puts a fucking ring on her finger, and it's all, it's all very classic Hitchcock weirdness, right? Like, classic Hitchcock perv weird behavior, right? But then... Whenever she finds out he's the killer, you kind of expect, or at least I kind of expected, like, ooh, she's going to question whether or not she wants to turn him in or not. You know what I mean? That's where this is going. That, like, I love my uncle so much, I don't care if he's a killer, right? That she's going to be flirting with that decision. I think if it was a modern movie, we might get that, but we don't get that. As soon as she finds out he's a killer, she's the moral center of the movie, and she's doing everything she can to basically rat him out um, in the safest way possible. So like, it felt like to me, like there was like a big switch in the middle of the movie where it's like, no, no, now she's the moral center of the movie. Whereas like for the first 45 minutes or so, you're like, does she want to fuck her uncle? You know, like it's the perviness disappears halfway through. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. And for the first 45 minutes, it wasn't just that. It was also like, is he going to Mm. like, is, is, is there something really awful that's going to happen? So when that tonal shift happens, I accepted it just because there are certain things, as we both know, I mean, all of our listeners know, like watching old movies that you have to accept and not question very much of. Something else happens as well, uh, which is when the the detective is like, you know, I'm in love with you. I fell in love with you that night on the bench. It's like, okay, yeah. I'm not going to question this because I just have to accept what's going on. Hmm. But I mean, I would... I'm glad they didn't go the route of she's not going to turn him in, but I wish she had been a bit more skeptical because it did really seem like she bought in fairly quickly. Yeah. She's ready to turn him in almost instantly. Like, um, 
Yeah, it, it. I guess. I guess that that was my main problem with the movie. Don't get me wrong. I think it's still a great movie, and I think it's really, you know, just like he always is. Hitchcock is a master at some of these suspense pieces, like when she gets locked in the garage, and um, you know, all all that other like Hitchcock is so perfect because it's like she gets locked in the garage, and I'm like, how the fuck is she going to get out of there? You know, and then the neighbor's walking by, and it's like, oh, that makes sense. The neighbor was walking by. You know, like it, he sets up these traps and then he gives himself an out for the trap, you know, because obviously she can't die, you know? So, like, it's perfectly constructed in that way, like a perfectly constructed machine. The thing that I balked at, though, was just the, I was like, man, I don't know if you're getting it, Hitch. I don't know if, I don't know if this family is really, like, I'm not feeling bad that they got corrupted. You know what I mean? Like, I'm kind of like, is it that big of a deal if he kills all this family? Like, I don't really like any of them, to be honest. Like, you know, I don't know. Um, that was kind of my, that was kind of like my little sticking point. But I do think it's a great movie. And I also think it's one of the best uh, uh, small, t- uh, like non-city, like small town noirs that exist. Because um, it, uh, and it was filmed on location, by the way. Um, very beautifully, I might add. Um I mean, I will, I will say this as we transition to the strangers on a train, I enjoyed it. And I agree with you about the family. Like I wasn't invested in that regard, but in my opinion, strangers on a train is superior in pretty much every way it's superior in characters and story, uh, pacing suspense, all of it. I thought this, this movie kind of blew my mind, honestly, dude, dude. I could not agree more. I'm so glad you said that Strangers on a Train was the better one because you you teased me a little bit early on. You were like, one of them's way better than the other one. And I was like, please, God, let him say it's Strangers <laughs> on a Train. Because, dude, man, does this movie fucking cook, man. Like <laughs> This movie, I mean, first let's say what it's about. So basically yeah. two guys meet on a train and one of them is a fucking psycho. And he says, <laughs> hey, man. How about I murder your problem person in your life and you murder mine? And in this case, it was his estranged wife and, and then the psycho's father. Um, he's like, hey, they'll never even suspect a thing. Let's just kill him, right? <laughs> well, only one party was in on this, but that didn't take much because old Bruno was like, I'm fucking killing her. Yeah. So he chokes his, his, his estranged wife to death at a fair. And then the movie just takes off. Uh <laughs> Basically, uh, Robert Walker puts this movie on his shoulders yep. and just carries it because his performance is nothing short of fucking amazing. Dude, let's OK. I don't even know where to fucking start with this with this performance, much less this movie. Like, OK, I, I know I know it's a tendency of like a lot of people to like look back at like and Letterboxd is fucking absolutely poisoned with this shit of like any older movie. They're like, Catherine Hubbard's a lesbian in this one. And it's like, okay, call everybody calm down, you know, but what Robert Walker's character, Bruno is 1000% gay and absolutely in love with Farley Granger's character. Like, and it's not subtle at all. Like, I mean, oh, absolutely not. The only thing is, at some point throughout the movie, it stops being about this weird, closeted kind of love for this other man, and kind of it does switch a little bit. But yeah. yeah, for for probably about half or a little more, it is completely about the fact that he does he does love like he he wants to bang this dude. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's it. What's great about it too is it's not. 
it's the kind of love story that like I, you know, the gay people wouldn't allowed to be in for like, I don't know, till now, essentially, because like it, it's it's not a traditional love story. Is it like Robert Walker is not like I'm in love with this guy. Oh, but I can't because I'm gay. You know, like, no, 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 no. He is obsessed with this guy, basically pounces on him the first time he sees him. Maybe he was stalking him. We don't even know that for sure. Right. Um. I, I mean, it's implied that he's stalking him, but no, we don't know. We don't know for sure. I would not be shocked at all if he was stalking him. And like, this is not a situation where Bruno, Robert Walker's character is like, this is not a situation where he's like, oh man, I thought we had a pact. I thought we agreed to murder each other, each other's people. No, 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 no. Bruno was not under that delusion. Bruno killed this motherfucker's wife to get closer to him, right? Like this is, it literally is like a, is like, uh, I killed your wife for you. Are you in love with me yet? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's literally, I mean, he doesn't come out and say that, but he might as well have. Like, it's like, it, it, I, I, I don't know, man. It's just, his character is so insane. And like, he, he's, he's charming too, man. Like, he, he's very charming. He's funny. He's um, gregarious. Uh, I mean, dude, the guy's in a robe. His mother is doing his nails. Uh, he almost chokes a woman to death in the middle of a dinner party. <laughs> dude, the dinner party was my favorite because, like, I was watching it and I'm like, oh my god, I've been <laughs> at a party where I asked someone how they would murder somebody if they could do it. So it's like I'm watching this happen and I'm like, Bruno, on some level, I understand what you are like. <laughs> Oh, that's incredible. Oh, it's, just, it's it's such a great scene. And then they both pass out. And then they're like, oh, I guess they're playing some kind of game. It's like, no, he's a fucking, <laughs> he almost choked this woman to death at a party. Like, what are you talking about? Like, she's like, she, he chokes her so much. She's like coughing afterwards. Like, <laughs> like this woman, this woman, the blood went out of this woman's head, you know? Um, But dude, there's a great moment where, Man, this is my favorite moment of the movie, and maybe the turning point of the movie, where, or no, not turning point. That's not the right word, but it, it's it's the confirmation you get that the feeling is not mutual from Farley Granger, but he's, I don't know if he's thinking about it, but it's not. You know what I mean? Like I don't know what I don't. I guess I don't know what word I'm trying to use. He's not in love with Robert Walker too, but he's, you know, it's it's entered his head. You know, let's just say that it's entered his head. Like, hmm. I've got a funny feeling about this guy and I don't like it. And the funny feeling is me being a little aroused. Um, but like, there's a moment where after Robert Walker almost chokes someone to death at the dinner party that he was not invited to, by the way, he just crashes the party. Um, and then he passes out, goes into the next room is revived by his, his lover essentially. And Robert Walker stands up and is like, you know, I got to get out of here or whatever. And Farley Granger has this amazing moment where he goes, uh, hold on a second, and like fusses over him and fixes his collar. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dude, he like fixes his collar. And like right in that moment, you're like, mm, this is this is 0.01% mutual. You know what I mean? Like just a hair mutual. Like, I don't know. Do you think I was, was I misreading that scene? What do you think about that? I... 
I didn't take the scene that way, but I mm. also can't necessarily say you were misreading it. I think that's the that's the beauty of 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 trying to interpret some of this. But I, I personally didn't take it that way. I was pretty much sold on the fact that uh that he thought Bruno was a psycho the entire fucking time. And actually oh, it okay. just kept getting it just kept getting more cemented with every with every time they would like when when he shows up to his house to talk to his father and then Bruno is just under the blanket. And he's like he's like Hello. He's like Hello guy. He's like, oh, I was going to tell you my father would be out, but you you seem dead set on doing this. It was just so. Ugh. And it's like, I will say, like, clearly Guy knew something because he confidently strolled away from him knowing he had a gun in hand, knowing he is a fucking psycho. Yeah. Well, OK, so there has to be something there. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about Farley Granger's character before we wrap it up, because. What do you think about this guy? Because, I mean, OK, he's a. He's a tennis champion, right? But like he, he I get the idea, and I'm I'm really trying not to like re, like read too much into it because I think that's an easy mistake to make, especially a movie like this where like all the subtext is barely concealed. You know what I mean? You do not have to read too much into it to really know what this movie's about. Um but when I think of Farley Granger's character, right? Because they're they're kind of set up as polar opposites, right? Robert Walker is like, you're one of those people that do things. I wish I was one of those people, you know, and, but Farley Granger's, he, he seems, I agree with you that he seems like most of the movie he's looking like this guy's a fucking lunatic, but there are flashes where it's like, not all is right with this Farley Granger character. Not that he wants to be a killer or anything, or that he's in love with Bruno. Certainly not. I don't think that's the case at all, but like, there's he's so boring and so i mean think about his life he's he's a tennis pro he's senator's daughter he works at the senator's office he's in washington dc you know he lives a very boring kind of just stayed lifestyle and like i just kept looking at farley granger like there's no thought behind those eyes like this guy this guy is just like he's just boring and like and I like I kept wanting myself to be like, dude, if you fully embraced Robert Walker's character, you guys could be the greatest. You could put Leopold and Loeb to shame. You know what I mean? Like you guys would be the greatest gay killers to ever exist on the planet. You know, like you guys could go, <laughs> you guys could go off and probably live a happy life together. You know, just murdering people. Um, does that kind of make sense? Like it almost kind of like a, you want Farley Granger a little bit to just be like, to just give into it, you know, and go run off and be Robert Walker's murdering lover. I don't know. What, do, what are your thoughts on Farley Granger's character? Cause he's a little hard to read. He is hard to read, but I don't read it that way. I would be, I would be hard pressed to trust Bruno ever. Um, uh, I think that That's guy, fair. guy is the type of character uh, where it's almost like he's been told like what to do and what path to take for most of his life until recently with all the shit going on with his wife. And, uh, and I, I feel like he, he, he does see a form of freedom in Bruno, but hmm. for the most part, like he doesn't want to sacrifice what he has for that, for right. that. Not, not even, 
not even a relationship with Bruno, but I mean for what Bruno is offering in terms of being a fucking psycho. Right. Right. No, you're right. I think that's I think that's definitely kind of the overarching uh, the overarching narrative of the character, but you, but I think you hit the nail on the head when you're like this this in the same way that Cary Grant's um, complacent ad man at the beginning of North by Northwest is disrupted by the big wronged man adventure he has to go on. Um, I think Guy in this movie is the same way. You know what I mean? I think he he is in this kind of um, uh, you know, boring, uh, trapped in this, you know, sham marriage, going to have to raise somebody else's, somebody else's kid. You know, he, he's kind of trapped in a situation and, and Bruno essentially frees him, you know? Um, and when you think about that towards the end of the movie, it's like, dude, you, I mean, you better be thanking Bruno on your hands and knees, no pun intended, because like you're, you're free now because of him and he took the rap and he's, you know, he's dead. So like, you know what I mean? Like he improved your life in in really measurable ways, you know? No, absolutely. And I think that's the part of it that that's kind of like you, you see that freedom, but Mm. it's just too, it's just too much to, to risk is the biggest thing. Sure. Because after all, this is, he is, he, Farley Granger's character guy is, um, he is that guy. Like he, he is just uh, basically a, a stand-in. You know, I do what I'm told. Marry the senator's daughter, whatever, whatever. From a small town, like it's I'm boring. You know, and Bruno spiced up my life and set me free. But now I got to get back to being the boring me. You know. Um, but I mean, I, I will say though, like like in closing, a little bit, it would be this movie deserves to be more well-known Hitchcock. This mm. does not deserve to be relegated to like a B or C tier. I do think this is a tier Hitchcock. It just maybe doesn't have the name or whatever that it factor was for all of his other movies. Uh, like, like Rear window vertigo uh, psycho, all the ones we've discussed. Uh, this movie deserves to be up there. In my opinion, it is so good. These performances are so great. I mean, this movie rocks. It really does, man. And the fairgrounds are such a fun place for all the killing to take place, you know? Like, oh, absolutely. Ju- yeah, with the with the rides and the music and the just the overall ambiance. Yeah, it's 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 quite amazing. And it like you said, man, you, you said it best. It cannot be emphasized enough how much Robert Walker puts this thing on his back. And carries it across the finish line. Like he, he just—it's unbelievable, man. Like the the new one. You know what he reminded me? He reminded me of like, and I know we've obviously never seen any footage of Oscar Wilde, but like it reminded me of the personage of Oscar Wilde. You know, like or like the, you know, witty kind of gregarious, but you know, like mm, I don't know, maybe we'll kill somebody. You know what I mean? Like obviously Oscar Wilde wasn't. I can a, see that. Yeah, a serial killer, but kind of a bon vivant. You know that like, we know of. Yeah, that we know of. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I don't, I, man, what a performance and what a character too, you know, like it's not just the performance. It's, it's this Bruno character. Who's just, uh, the most charming person in the room and also the most insane and like, so just, just willing to be just gay and different. And 
<laughs> dude, he, he fucking hates his dad, man. I mean, you know, you, you got to respect it, I guess, at some point. Um, man, what a movie. What a character. We, you know, I guess I guess the main takeaway is we should all strive to be a little bit more like Bruno. No, exactly. I mean, but if you are going to make a murder pact, be sure the other person is 100% on board before you just kind of uh, do what you want. Well, maybe. I mean, unless you... Th- <laughs> <laughs> unless you're convinced that you murdering this person's the most problematic person in this other person's life will make them love you that if you're convinced of that <laughs> go for it <laughs> yeah i mean at that point you may want to see help first uh dude by either- the way guy, guy tries it he's like you need to see a psychiatrist and yeah <laughs> Bruno's like you're my psychiatrist and he's like what <laughs> he's like i'm not i'm not qualified for that <laughs> Man, oh man, what, anyway, a great, what a great movie. Guys, why, I mean, uh, watch both of these, but this movie in particular is so fucking good. Just just watch this movie. Even if it's been a while since you've seen it, revisit it. It is worth watching because I was just, I was actually kind of blown away by how much I enjoyed it. And when you think about it, I mean, this is 1951, Rear Windows three years away. This is mature Hitchcock. You know what I mean? Like, this is not... You know, 43 was three years after he came to America. Like, it, you know, like this is not trying to find the ropes of the American film industry. This is full tilt Hitchcock. Um, and it, it, you're right. It, it completely deserves to be in that larger conversation, equally as psychologically strange as Marnie and Vertigo and, you know, Rear Window and all those. Um, great movie. I'm glad we, re- we uh, rewatched it. No, yeah, no, same here, man. So, yeah, um, guys, if you want to watch ahead for what we're doing next week, we will let you know that it is uh, actually a Martin Scorsese double feature uh, because of what he's doing on Letterboxd, which you know more about that than I do. But he basically made a list of, of companion movies, and we are doing Hugo and The Magic Box. And uh, if you guys want to watch along, feel free to do that. But I am excited to uh, to watch both of those. Revisit Hugo, and I've never seen The Magic Box. So, Yeah, I've never seen it either. I'm excited to uh, rewatch and to get some added context to uh, Hugo. And, you know, I mean, since we're doing this, we can just we can just say, like, after that, we'll most likely be doing British Hitchcock, 39 Steps, and Lady Vanishes. And then after that, it's going to be our Alexander Payne episode. So if you guys want to want to get to watching with us uh feel free we got a lot of fun stuff yeah, coming up and when we do pain we're kind of just going to talk about his probably his whole filmography while focusing on just a couple of his of his hits but just i think there's a through line there to follow with him but yeah you guys should follow along and uh let us know what you think but if, if you have not seen strangers on a train and you watch it uh let us know what you think because i honestly think there's no way you can watch it and not enjoy it hmm. yeah But anyway, do you have anything to add before we get out of here? No, let's wrap it up. Okay, guys, rate and review wherever you listen. Really helps the algorithm. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, you know the drill. Either way, we'll see you next week at the Silver Screen Video.